What's happening? Welcome to the conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Rashad Ritchie. I gotta tell you, I've been mad as hell at the response of President Joe Biden as it relates to what's happening with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. These milquetoast responses are getting on my last nerves. To talk more about it, I have with me David Tafuri. David Tafuri is a former Obama campaign foreign policy advisor and former State Department official. He knows a little bit about this stuff. David, thank you for being on the conversation. How are you? Great, thanks for having me. Okay, man, let me get right into it. First of all, Donald Trump came in, he messed a lot of stuff up. The Abraham Accords, a complete and utter failure. It was a nice idea, but it was it was really meant. The aim of it was still to oust the Palestinians. It didn't work as planned and I think it made things quite worse. Why do you think the administration, the current administration has been so non-effective given this first huge international test of President Joe Biden? Let me address the Abraham Accords because you raised them. I supported the Abraham Accords. I think they were a positive achievement by the US. And it was positive for Israel and it was positive for the Arab countries that normalized relations with Israel as a result of the Abraham Accords. But what it didn't do, which the Trump administration claimed it would do, was resolve the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. Because it really didn't give anything to the Palestinians. And you might argue it actually further isolated the Palestinians, making them even more willing to engage in violence. Now, with respect to Biden's a response. Remember, we are really early in the Biden administration. Many people who will be key officials in the State Department on Middle East policy are not even confirmed yet or not even in place yet. In many places across the Middle East, not just in Israel and Palestine, the policy of the Biden administration has not yet been fully formulated. So I don't think that we should judge the Biden administration with respect to what's happened so far. And this, of course, caught Everyone off guard, we always know there's a possibility for violence. But this violence erupted out of a result of this tit for tat between Palestinians and Jews in Jerusalem. David, I gotta say this man, all right, so I disagree with you on that. I do think you can judge the administration based on their public responses. That doesn't mean that's actually the policy that will stick moving forward once you start having some of the more long-term diplomatic entities in place, I get that part. But let's be clear, he's currently the President of the United States. He has currently issued a statement. And you know this from working with President Barack Obama because he said this at one point when he was criticized for not being friendly enough to Netanyahu. He said, in order to effectively negotiate, you must have room between you and both of the parties involved. If you walk into the room and you're connected to one party, and disconnected from the other party, you will not be an effective negotiator. Your former boss said that, and I think he was correct. What do you say to Biden seemingly being more friendly to Netanyahu, even though it is clear that Netanyahu is the villain in this story? Well, I agree with President Obama on that point fully, and I think you're absolutely right about that. But all previous Democratic and Republican presidents other than Trump, really maintained that balance pretty well. It was Trump that really tipped the balance completely in favor of Israel. And in order to get a peace deal between Israel and the Palestinians, both sides are gonna have to give up a lot. Neither side is gonna be happy if there is a deal. And what 
Trump tried to do was do everything to make Israel happy and do nothing to try and give something to the Palestinians in return. And that's why the Trump administration was such a huge setback for the Palestinian Israel peace process. And Biden and the Biden administration are now trying to reset that. But it's going to take a lot of time to wind back some of what Trump did. And it is important for the Biden administration to maintain a strong relationship with Israel. They are a very important ally in the Middle East. And while we have equities at stake in the Israel-Palestinian dispute, we also have equities at stake in other places in the Middle East. And we need Israel on our side for those other places as well. So this is a delicate balancing act. Really, I blame President Trump and the Trump administration for promising they'd have peace between Israel and the Palestinians and doing nothing to actually achieve it. Let me, I gotta jump back to the Abraham Accords just for a moment. Um, because David, this is what you do, man, you're a policy guy. Uh, and I respect your work and I'm glad that you joined me on the show. When the Abraham Accords um, was signed, did you really believe that it would actually help the relationship between Yemen, Syria, Libya, the West Bank, Gaza Strip? Did you really believe that or did you think the Trump administration that they were really selling a ticket uh, that really could not be purchased? What I thought was that the Trump administration achieved something positive with respect to Israel-Arab relations. And remember, it really started with Israel and the UAE, the United Arab right. Emirates. And, and, and just for further clarity, uh, the, the entire concept of the Abraham Accords was to look at the prophet Abraham as a point of contact um, in uh, Judaism and Islamic religion, faith, just a point of clarity, go ahead. Right, an important figure for both religions. Correct. The, the, so what it did is it actually got two strong allies of the US, the UAE and Israel together and got them to normalize relations. And remember, there wasn't a positive thing, which is in return, UAE got Israel to agree not to do you know, an annex of almost one third of the territory in the West Bank, which Israel was looking like it might do. It was not clear it was gonna do that. And so that was a positive. And then when it had normalized relations with the other countries, that was positive. But they didn't really give anything else to the Palestinians to bring the Palestinians on board. It just helped Israel-Arab relations, not Israel-Palestinian. Yeah. Agreed, uh, what we got, four million Palestinians uh, Israel, uh, Israel controlled territory, that, that's about right? Correct. Let's talk about the political reality of Netanyahu. Netanyahu is the longest serving prime minister uh, in the history of Israel. Um, he was unable September 19th of 2019, he was unable uh, to win a convincing majority for the constitutional mandate to govern. So he basically has a broken gover government, a negotiated government uh, through the uh, uh, parliament, uh, parliamentary rules. Um, so now you have a guy fractured. He's even more fractured because uh, just a few days ago, this cat missed his deadline to create a consolidated government or a new government. So, so now he's even more weak today than he was when he basically lost the election. Does this play, in your opinion, as an actual international policy expert? Does his political woes play into what's happening right now and the aggression that we see? from Israel? Well, I I think you have to say yes, it's playing a part in it. He obviously is a beleaguered prime minister. He's you know been in the center of controversy for a long time now. He 
has become more beholden than he was before to you know right wing right wing extremists in Israel, some of whom have engaged in you know disgusting violence, you know, and there's violence on both sides by radicals on both sides. But Netanyahu used to be tougher on the right wing extremists, and now he's more beholden to them. I think because of the political situation. The really, you know, I really am looking for the U.S. To put pressure on Netanyahu and on the Palestinians, we need a temporary ceasefire, but then we need a more long-term peace process, and that's going to require Israel to do some things it hasn't done before, like back off on some of the settlements, halt any further settlements in the West Bank, prosecute and investigate right-wing extremists in Israel, Jews who have engaged in violence, and 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 of course the Palestinians have to give up a lot too. We have to get Hamas, you know. To back off, no more rockets out of the Gaza Strip. Israel does have its, the right to defend itself when rockets are, are are fired from the Gaza Strip. And ultimately, if that doesn't stop, you know, Israel is going to engage in further military action towards Gaza. Um, I've abandoned the idea uh, that somehow this can be a one-state solution. Have you abandoned that idea? Do you believe the only way forward is a two-state bona fide solution? I do. I mean, I've felt for a long time that we have to have a two-state solution. Remember, we were pretty close during the Clinton administration. We didn't quite achieve it. I do believe it's achievable, and it's probably only going to happen when we have a really strong U.S. president who knocks some heads together and who who takes risks himself. Because here, this is a very controversial issue, and he's not going to please anyone here either. Or he's going to have a lot of people who are going to criticize what he does. We need strong leadership, and hopefully, Biden can provide that. Twitter has become a place of what we call de facto policy. While presidents don't create policy on Twitter, they definitely let you know what policy they will and will not support via their Twitter tweet, right? So if you were advising Joe Biden right now, President Biden, what would you tell him about his Twitter? Oh, well, I mean, I don't. I don't think he should be using Twitter to announce policy. I mean, you can't. You can't. You can't describe a policy, especially something as complicated as Israel-Palestinian, uh, you know, peace process in 240 characters. That's impossible. right. But would you would you advise him to do what he did, which was take such a neutral response that he has created significant backlash by members of his own party and obviously others because of their stance, their policy stance in relationship to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Would you agree? Or did you agree with the tweet that he sent out? I don't think he should be using Twitter to engage in any controversial policy. It's not the right way. He's a good speaker. He should be using speeches and oratory and writing and press statements, not Twitter. We learned to accept that under Trump. It's not acceptable for a president. Yeah. Well, I hope he starts doing some of what you just named as well. I I will be happy to just you know hear a good speech that stands up for right. Okay. Um, David, you're a very accomplished person. I have a lot of respect for you, man. I appreciate you coming on the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What's happening? I'm your host, Dr. Rashad Ritchie. This is the conversation. Um, I have a great discussion today. We have Saru J. Rahman. Saru J. Rahman is the president of One Fair Wage and the director of the Food Labor Research Center at University of California, um, Berkeley. Uh, Saru, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on the program. Um, 
let's talk about this because you have been blazing the trail for years discussing the inequity that's involved in individuals who wait tables, okay? Now let me tell you why this is near and dear to my heart. I used to be a waiter, I waited tables. I worked at all kinds of restaurants, right? Um, and at that time, I was paid $2.13 an hour. That's how much I got paid. And then the tips would try to you know, compensate me some real money. Didn't always work out. I did some research and realized that that is still the same federal minimum wage. I have not been a waiter for over 20 years. And it is still $2.13. How in the hell did that happen? Great question. How in the hell is that happening? Um, I think it's important to go way back and start with the history of this issue. Listen, before 1853 in the US, waiters were mostly white men and they got a full wage. Mm -hmm. Tipping originated in feudal Europe, came over to the US in the 1850s and people resoundingly in America rejected tipping, they didn't like it. Until 1853, these white male waiters went on strike. And in retaliation, the restaurant owners did not want to raise their wages. So they decided at emancipation, which came just about 12 years later, to change the notion of tipping from being an extra or bonus on top of the wage, as it had always been in feudal Europe, to becoming a replacement for wages for black people. That's right. And so important to understand that this is not a, a situation where the wage has gone up too slowly. No, this is a situation where the wage went down as black people and women entered the industry, which means this sub-minimum wage, this ridiculous $2 wage cannot be understood as anything other than a devaluation of black lives and a devaluation of women's work. We went from zero at emancipation all the way up to $2.13 an hour, where it's been stuck for 31 years due to the lobbying of the National Restaurant Association over the last century. We call it the other NRA. It represents the chains, the IHOPs, the Applebee's. And this has essentially been a fight between these huge powerful trade lobbies, the National Restaurant Association and the corporate chains that make up the Restaurant Association. And the women and women of color in particular, who are the vast majority of tipped workers today. Let me highlight something. There was a writer named William Scott. William Scott, anti-tipping individual, did some research and wrote, and this was back in 1916, and wrote that basically accepting a tip is undemocratic, his word, as the relation of master and slave. The, there was another book written in 1902 called Tipping and American Social History of Gratuities that said, and I quote, Negroes take tips, of course, one expects that of them. It is a token of their inferiority. Tips go with, tips go with severity and no man who is a voter in this country is in the least justified in being in service. Uh, and he was saying that the whole tipping industry or the tipping method was something to do to people or for people who were inferior in the societal construct. And that is all they deserve, they, they deserve nothing more. And it seems as if the law is an expression of that still today. 
they deserve nothing more than $2.13 an hour. It is literally a sub minimum wage, which right. as I said is a reflection of the value we place on black people in this country and women. Listen, this is a population today. Restaurant, there are about 14 million restaurant workers in the US, or at least there were prior to the pandemic. And about six or seven million tipped workers, two thirds of whom are women disproportionately women of color. This is nothing more than a reflection of our the value we place on women and in particular women of color. There's no other reason this wage has stayed at $2 except a valuation of women and women of color as subhuman given their sub minimum wage. Why is it so difficult for a company and we're talking about fortune 300, 400, 500 companies, they make a lot of money, right? Why is it so difficult for them to just say, you know what? Let's make sure people make a minimum wage. And I'm going to say this, you guys aren't really saying people need to make a bunch of money. You're saying they need to at least make the minimum wage, right? That's they right. can work for bonuses that that will probably give them living wages if you add the bonus of their tips on top of the minimum wage. Now That's there are some states who do better than others. I think out of them, California may be the better of all of the states that have a different state law that allows for yearly, I'm sorry, for an hourly wage to be set higher. But none of the other states are doing that good of job. I mean, so 49 states are doing pretty horrible. 43 states, there are okay. seven states that got rid of this legacy of slavery many decades ago. California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska. And to your question, why can't these companies Pay more, can they really not pay more? Well, it's so important to note that actually you don't need even need to listen to me. In early April, Newsweek exposed that Denny's and Cheesecake Factory in the same moment that their trade lobby, the National Restaurant Association was telling Congress, you cannot raise the wage, it's impossible. The industry will collapse, we'll all have to shut down. In that same moment, Denny's and Cheesecake Factory were telling investors in analyst calls, in fact, 15 and a full minimum wage for tipped workers with tips on top had resulted in Denny's and Cheesecake Factory in California outperforming the system. They said they grew faster in California than any other state in the US because, and this is what we've been saying for years, customer spending is higher in California. When you pay people more, guess what they do? They go and eat out. That is what restaurant workers do. They eat, they eat out, they spend. That is what low wage workers do. And so that they saw, they admitted it. They admitted that in fact, the company is doing better. And as a result of that, shareholders revolted. There was a follow up headline in, in Newsweek, Denny's shareholder revolt. There's actually a meeting tomorrow of the Denny's general shareholder meeting. And there's gonna be, it's gonna be raised again. Shareholders have been asking Denny's and these companies, wait a second. If you're telling us that we're doing better in California with 15 and one fair wage, you fighting this policy in Congress is hurting shareholder interests because we could grow a lot faster all over the country if we were paying a livable wage. And I gotta tell you one other thing, they are hurting shareholder interests for another reason, and that is now. We are facing the biggest labor crisis in the history of our industry, and these restaurants don't have enough workers because workers have finally come to the point of saying $2, tips are down 50 to 75%, it is not worth it anymore. Yeah, and we talk about a concept in corporate America called SR, social responsibility. And somehow, somehow, restaurants that pay individuals $2.13 an hour, they have been immune to that narrative. 
no more. They cannot be immune to that narrative anymore. Social responsibility must start with fair wages. You, you right. can't even launch off the pad without talking about fair wages for your workers. Um, what do you think needs to happen um, legislatively in order to start moving the needle? And why do you think even Democrats who tend to be more progressive on this issue have not given it um, the attention it deserves? It's the, called the Raise the Wage Act. Uh, it was introduced as part of the COVID package earlier this year by yeah. Senator Sanders in the Senate and Bobby Scott in the House. But it continues as a standalone bill. The White House says they want to get it across the finish line this year. And you're right, there are eight Democratic senators who are blocking this bill. 42 Democrats in the House have voted for it. All the Democrats in the House have voted for, voted for it. I'm sorry, 42 in the Senate have voted for it and all of the House. So these eight Democrats have voted against it largely because of the lobbying of the Restaurant Association. I mean, two of these senators, Cinema and Mansion, actually headlined the National Restaurant Association's lobbying conference this year. So they are definitely working with the Restaurant Association. And I think it's time for all of those eight to realize that in fact, they are vulnerable to losing in 2022 if they're gonna side with the Restaurant Association as opposed to the people. Because two things are happening. People are walking away from the restaurant industry and saying this wage doesn't work anymore. Tips are way down during the pandemic, sexual harassment is way up, hostility is way up, mm -hmm. it's not worth it anymore. But two, they're saying we're also gonna walk away from the polls because we voted for Democrats That's in- right. 20 to deliver on this issue. And so we're gonna see more walkouts if we don't deliver soon. Very well said, we support you in this fight. We will continue to highlight it. I'm appreciative that people like you have been fighting this fight for a long time and definitely making some movement. I appreciate you joining us on the conversation. Thank you so much.